0: Welcome to Profiles, from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is astronomer Katie Pilachowski. She holds the Kirkwood Chair in Astronomy at Indiana University Bloomington, where she teaches and conducts research on the evolution of stars and the history of the Milky Way galaxy. She does this through detailed study of the chemical composition of stars. Pilachowski specializes in the study of groups of stars called globular star clusters. She's also been active in the areas of light pollution, large telescope design and construction, women in science, and diversity. In addition to her research, Pilachowski has held several leadership positions in the astronomical community. She's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, she's served as president of the American Astronomical Society, and as an astronomy faculty member, she and her colleagues teach the nearly one-third of IU undergraduate students who've chosen astronomy to fulfill their science requirements. Recently, Katie Pilachowski joined me for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Katie Pilachowski, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I think the first thing I'd like to ask you is about the first thing that people tend to ask you. When you meet someone and they find out you're an astronomer, what's the first thing they usually ask you? The first thing.
1: There are actually a few things that are pretty typical, but usually the first thing is, is there life out there? Are there aliens? Have they visited? Can you find them elsewhere in the universe? Are there Martians? This question about life seems to be one that's on people's minds a lot when they find out, when they think about astronomy. And I think that's partly because of the excitement about the exoplanets. We know a lot more than we did 20, 30 years ago about the possibilities of life in the universe. And that really captures the public's imagination.
0: What sort of things do you tell them?
1: Well, I like to start with the idea about what we're made of and how that relates to the overall composition of the universe. So we're primarily made of carbon and oxygen, some nitrogen in those proteins, hydrogen, and then some trace elements. What we know about the universe is that hydrogen is the most abundant element, and that carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, and iron are the next four or five most abundant elements in the universe. Well, there's helium, we'll put that aside, because that's not really part of the life question. We're made of the stuff that is the most common stuff in the universe. It's also the stuff that is chemically most complicated in the sense of being able to form big molecules. And from that point of view, what occurs to me then, and what I explain to people, is that because we're made of that common stuff, and those molecules that we find in ourselves, we also find in other environments in the universe, that it seems almost impossible that there wouldn't be life elsewhere. I can't answer the question about intelligent life, but it seems to me really impossible that there wouldn't be life elsewhere.
0: And that operates independently of the notion that there's just an awful lot of space out there, that considering the size of the known or even the unknown universe, It seems like there's got to be something out there. Your approach is, if you'll forgive me, more elemental. (laughs) Very elemental,
1: yes. And then with the discovery of exoplanets, we now know that there are a billion or more planets like, well, I say like Earth. We don't know that. But planets that exist in environments where water could be found on their surfaces. And we think that water is probably an important part of the development of life. And that we know that there are probably a billion or more places in our own galaxy, just not the whole universe, but just our own galaxy, where life could form. And that strikes me as really high odds that there is life out there somewhere.
0: I'd love to return to the topic of exoplanets. In other words, planets that are beyond our solar system and how we know about them, what we know about them, the technological innovations that allowed us to know more about them. But first, I was wondering if we could go back a bit more and talk about your introduction to astronomy. What first drew you to astronomy?
1: I hate to date myself, but I am a child of the space age in the 1950s with the beginning of orbital vehicles, human spaceflight, I was just a kid and it captivated me. At that time in the country, there was a tremendous push for kids to study science because we were, I mean, it's a terrible reason, but because we were in competition with the Soviets. But I found science to be just an amazing topic of my own personal interest. And I was fortunate because My mother enrolled me in an all-about-science book club, so every month I would get a book in the mail about some field of science addressed to me, and I felt I had to read it. I loved every one of those books, but they covered every topic you can imagine, particularly those topics that are really exciting for kids, dinosaurs, um, the clouds and meteorology, the history of the earth, geology. And astronomy and the planets, I was just captivated by those books. It was also a time when astronomy was really beginning to understand in detail the process of the origin and evolution of stars. That work was done primarily in the 50s, and it was motivated by the development of large telescopes, particularly the 200-inch, which allowed astronomers to study in detail the types of stars in huge, massive star clusters called globular clusters. And in the 50s, they understood for the first time how stars formed and evolved from stars like the sun to become giant stars and then eventually to become white dwarf stars. Because that was such a hot topic at that point, there were writers, science writers, who wrote books about that topic, which I devoured My mother would take me to the library. I would check those books out, books by Asimov, by Hoyle, by Gamow, just amazing writers and also amazing scientists. And they told this story about the evolution of stars for the public at a level that a junior high or high school kid could understand. And those books also pulled me along this path, into science, but particularly into
0: astronomy. You mentioned stars, I think high on the list of things that everyone relies on daily but tends to take for granted is the sun. So what else should we know about our closest star?
1: (laughs) Wow. There's so much to know about the sun. As a scientist, what matters to me is how we see inside the sun, how we understand the internal structure of the sun, and how that helps us understand the behavior of our sun. So how do we see inside? This is a complicated sort of thing. But the sun, while it's purely a gas, behaves like a bowl of jelly. So if you whack it on the side with a spoon, the sun quivers. It jiggles. And those jiggles result in motions on the surface, in and out motions on the surface of the sun, very complicated motions. We can trace by a process of measuring the in and out, up and down sort of motions on the surface. We can see those by looking at particular spectral features on the sun due to atoms in the atmosphere of the sun. As the sun moves toward or away from us, those spectral features shift to higher or lower wavelength. We can measure that carefully. And by a detailed analysis of the modes of this wiggling, this jelly-like kind of oscillations on the sun, we can trace that into a model of the interior of the sun. We can see how great currents of gas flow inside the sun. We can see how those great currents develop and shape the magnetic field that we find on the sun, how that magnetic field forms the sunspots that we see on the surface of the sun, how those currents help us understand the 11-year sunspot cycle that we see on the sun, why sometimes there are so few sunspots, why sometimes there are so many, why it's about 11 years, that cycle, as it passes, how that relates to the magnetic field of the sun, how that magnetic field shapes the environment of the Earth in the area around the sun, how it interacts with the Earth's magnetic field, how it protects us from cosmic rays that are everywhere in deep space. The sun is an amazing thing. It helps us understand the internal structure of the sun, the origin of the energy that comes to Earth from the sun, how those internal structures regulate the balance of the sun to keep it stable over billions of years. Seeing inside the sun, I think, as a scientist, is the most exciting and most interesting thing. From the public's perspective, the great solar flares and the sunspots are incredible phenomena, but they relate to this internal structure. Your listeners might be interested to know that right now is a really boring time on the sun, that we have almost no sunspots. We have probably this year, we'll have uh, 250 to maybe 300 spotless days where there is no sunspot visible on the surface of the sun. But only five years from now in 2024, the sun will be active again with many sunspots visible all the time on the surface of the sun. And that will coincide with the eclipse that's coming to Bloomington in 2024. People should plan ahead to be here on April 8th, 2024, when we will be on the path of totality for a solar eclipse. And because that will be a time when the sun is very active, we will see probably a remarkable corona surrounding the sun, and probably a red-rimmed chromosphere as the moon crosses the limb of the sun, the outer edge of the sun's disk. So it's going to be an exciting time, and we can predict that by understanding all of these structures of the sun, all of the origin and evolution of its magnetic field, and the changes on the Sun. So I hope all of your listeners are getting ready for 2024. It's going to be a really exciting time here in
0: Bloomington. And also the cosmic chance that allows the diameter of our Moon to match the diameter of the Sun just the right size for an eclipse.
1: At just the time when we can appreciate it as well. We know the Moon is moving away from the Earth very slowly used to be much closer in hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, it would be further away. But right now, it's just the right size. That's an amazing coincidence.
0: Astronomer Katie Pilachowski, professor and occupier of the Kirkwood Chair in Astronomy at Indiana University Bloomington. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. So where is our sun in its life right now? What's going to happen to it?
1: So our sun formed about 4.6 billion years ago. And we can date that pretty precisely in basically two ways. One is that we can use the radioactive isotopes and their decay products in meteorites and in the Earth to understand how long it's been since the material formed into rock. We can also produce very detailed models of the sun, models of its radius, its luminosity, its temperature, based on what we know about the internal structure of the sun. We know very precisely how fast the sun is burning its hydrogen. We can measure the neutrinos that are produced by the fusion reactions that are constantly going on in the center of the Sun. And all this fits together to a model that's really very precise about the past and future of the Sun. We know that the Sun, after it formed 4.6 billion years ago, was a little bit dimmer than it is now, and that it's gradually gotten brighter, about 30% brighter, over the last 4.6 billion years. The Sun will continue to brighten very, very slowly, for the next, oh, four billion years or so, and then it's gonna run into trouble. At that point, the center part of the sun will have burned or fused all of its hydrogen into helium, and suddenly the sun will have no more energy source. That's gonna be a tough time for the sun, and surprisingly, you'd expect when it stops producing energy in the center, the sun would collapse because it no longer would have the pressure to sustain the outer parts. But in fact, what happens is very complicated, and the sun will become much bigger. It will probably expand to about the size of Venus. I don't mean the planet, but I mean the orbit of Venus. Wow. So it will go from about 1.4 million kilometers in diameter to about 70 times that diameter.
0: So it's going to eat Mercury on the way to that.
1: It will absorb Mercury on the way, probably absorb Venus, and it will become a huge but much cooler star in our sky. Just imagine how big, if it's 70 times bigger, how big it will appear in the sky at that time, if there were people living here. But because it's so large and only a little bit cooler, its temperature will drop on the surface from about, oh... 57, 5,800 degrees centigrade or Kelvin, down to about 4,000 degrees centigrade or Kelvin. It will be cooler. It will be more orangey-colored than it will be whitish as it is now and immensely bright. And so Earth will bake under this very, very
0: hot sun. What would the sky look like?
1: Yes. So along the way, the changes in the sun's luminosity will have a profound effect on the Earth. By the time this happens, we can predict with some credibility, I think, that the oceans will have evaporated and much of the atmosphere of the Earth may also have evaporated. Even before this happens, the Earth will probably become a barren ball, something like Mars, only much, much hotter. So once the Sun becomes a red giant, we call these kinds of stars red giants, Earth will already have been pretty well toasted. The sun will stay a red giant for about a billion years, and then it will blow off its outer layers and leave exposed a central core of very hot carbon and oxygen. By that point, the helium that's being produced now will have fused together to form carbon and oxygen nuclei, and the sun will be left as a bare, very hot ball of carbon and oxygen. When I say very hot, I mean hundreds of thousands of degrees at the surface, so extremely hot. And that hot ball will gradually cool off and fade away until the sun becomes what we call a white dwarf. That is a very dim ball of carbon and oxygen with a radius about the size of the Earth. It will have a mass about half of what the sun is now. The sun has a mass of 300,000 times the mass of the Earth. So it will be about 150,000 times the mass of the Earth at this point, but have a size about the size of the Earth. So incredibly dense, incredibly hot ball of carbon and oxygen. Because it's so small, it will be very faint and be hard to see from any distance away.
0: Being that size, about the size of the Earth, what sort of gravitational force will it exert on the solar system at that point?
1: The speed of the planets currently around the Sun is determined by their distance from the Sun and by the mass of the Sun. So as the mass changes, as this material is blown out into space beyond the solar system, the orbits of the planets will change. The planets will be going too fast for the mass and they will be moving outward. There are dynamical studies that suggest what might happen to those
0: individual planets.
1: And I can't recite them word for word right now. But they will definitely be changing as the sun's mass changes.
0: Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Can't wait to see it. (laughs) Which, of course, we won't.
1: (laughs) Well, but we do see this happening in other stars. So we can watch clusters of stars, for example, and see stars of different masses, which all form together, but all of different masses. And we know that they all evolve at different rates. And we can see how some of these stars have become red giants. Some of these stars have become white dwarfs. Some of the most massive ones have exploded and left black holes where they used to be or destroyed themselves completely. So we can trace this whole process by looking at the stars.
0: So zooming out a notch from our star to our solar system, here's something that seems to change depending on people's feelings about Pluto or on the, I think, still theoretical planet X. Have we still got eight planets in our solar system?
1: We still have eight planets in our solar system, and Pluto counts as a dwarf planet for a variety of reasons, which I think make a lot of sense. There is some observational evidence that there may be another, not huge, but reasonably sized planet out there somewhere, very dim, but which has an effect on the orbits of what we call the Kuiper Belt objects. So these are objects like Pluto We know about dozens and dozens of them at this point. Pluto is still amongst the very largest, but we know that there are many, many others out there and we can study their orbits and their orbits suggest some strange alignments. Too complicated for me to explain without drawing pictures and waving my hands, but those alignments suggest some sort of gravitational disturbance in the outer solar system that is affecting how those dwarf planets out there are orbiting. We haven't been able to find it yet. It's very dim because it's far from the sun. We know maybe a little bit about what its orbit might look like based on how it disturbs the orbits of the other Kuiper Belt objects. But we can't pin it down accurately enough to really find it. One of the hopes that we have is that one of the large new telescopes that's being constructed now called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope is being built in Chile We'll do a sky survey basically every night for the next 10 years. And it's possible that this telescope, it's a huge telescope. It has a primary mirror with a diameter of 8 meters, so it's really big. And it will be able to see really faint objects. And so it's possible that this telescope will be able to pick up all of the remaining large bodies in the outer part of our
0: solar system. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with Katie Pilachowski, an astronomer who specializes in large telescope design, light pollution, and the study of globular star clusters. Having the chance to speak with you gives me a rare opportunity for an interview and that we have the chance to really go back to the beginning, not of your career or even of your life, but the beginning of the universe itself. So we may as well do it. Let's talk about the Big Bang, which I, for one, never feel like I can completely get my mind around. So one question about the Big Bang is, which came first, space or matter? The stuff in it or the stuff that it fills? I I have an image of a vast nothing that eventually the Big Bang filled. And then, of course, well, what was here before the Big Bang, if that's true, and what's beyond that? So set me straight. What do we know right now about that? This
1: is one of the hardest concepts in astronomy, because it is so not intuitive. But space and energy began together. It's not one first and one second. The Big Bang was the beginning of space, and it began by expanding. The state of matter in that early universe is not one that we can describe with the physics we have now. The energy density was so high that the condition of energy was in a state that we just have not been able to duplicate or even predict. But it was a very, very high energy state. And in that condition, the difference between matter and energy is really not meaningful as the universe expanded, it cooled, and the universe went through a number of very early transitions. Energy converted into matter, and matter converted into different kinds of matter over an instant in time, as the universe expanded in those earliest instants. And then over the next seconds, to days, to years, to centuries, that matter continued to change until it basically arrived at the form in which we see it in the universe today. We're still very perplexed about that state of matter in the universe. We know a lot about the ordinary matter, the stuff I talked about before, the carbon, the nitrogen, the helium, the hydrogen. That comprises about 5% of what we know of, of the matter and energy in the universe. And that 5% emerged a few thousand years at most after the Big Bang. Something like 30% of the matter in the universe is in a form that we call dark matter. And this is matter that we don't understand at all. We don't know what it is. We do know some things about it. We know that it does not interact with light. So it doesn't absorb light. It doesn't emit light. It doesn't scatter light. It doesn't reflect light. So we can't see it. It doesn't glow. It doesn't block light. It doesn't interact with light at all. It does seem to have gravity. So it interacts with matter, and that gravity is what holds galaxies together, what holds clusters of galaxies together. And so we know it's there. We can detect it by looking at the motions of galaxies in space. We can detect it by its effect on light passing in the vicinity of galaxies. We have many ways of detecting this dark matter and of measuring its density, but we don't know what it is. We have not been able to detect any sort of particle that would account for this dark matter. So it's a big mystery. And then the remaining universe is this stuff we call dark energy, which is most of what's in the universe, and we have no idea at all about what this dark energy stuff is. But it seems to be driving today a greater expansion of the universe. So the universe every day is expanding faster than it was the day before. Not by a lot, just a little bit. But this expansion is being driven by something, and what we call that something is dark energy. It's a form of energy that's pushing the universe apart, but we don't know what it is.
0: I think I remember probably in high school, maybe elementary school, if I'm remembering correctly, I learned that the universe was expanding, and that it was going to slow down and eventually, under its own gravitic weight, I guess, start to collapse upon itself. In your career, in your lifetime so far, being an astronomer, how do we go from the way I was taught about the universe and how it's behaving to where we are now with the role of dark matter and dark energy and the fact that it's getting faster and still expanding?
1: So your early understanding was where astronomers were until the end of the 20th century. And the big question facing astronomy was was the universe open or closed or balanced right in between? And by open or closed, what I mean is is the universe expanding fast enough that it will overpower its own gravity and never recollapse, or is it expanding so slowly that the gravity will win out in the end and recollapse the universe? Because that was such an important question, astronomers worked very hard through the second half of the 20th century to measure the rate of expansion of the universe and to measure the total mass of the universe. So to answer the question, you have to know how much gravity is there and how fast is the universe expanding. In order to measure that expansion rate very accurately, astronomers had to begin to measure distances to galaxies that are very far away. And they began to use exploding stars that are called type 1a supernovae. We still don't know exactly what produces a type 1a supernova, but it has to do with the explosion of white dwarf material. Remember, I mentioned the carbon oxygen white dwarf that the sun will be? What become. the sun will be, yeah. Uh... If that object is bigger than about 1.4 times the mass of the sun, then it becomes unstable and explodes. There are a variety of ways to make it explode, but because it happens at exactly the same mass, at 1.4 times the mass of the Sun, that explosion produces exactly the same luminosity. And so if we can see those explosions in distant galaxies, measure exactly how luminous they are, then we can know exactly how far away that galaxy is. We can also measure how fast it's moving away from us. And from those two numbers, how far away is it, how fast is it moving, we can measure the expansion rate of the universe, which is what they wanted to do when they were making these measurements. And what they found was that the expansion rate of the universe has not been fixed. It's not expanding at the same rate. It's not slowing down as we thought it should, but it was actually speeding up. And sometime in the last couple of billion years, the dark energy force causing expansion overpowered the gravitational force that was kind of slowing down the expansion. As the density of the universe decreased, as objects move further and further apart, the density decreases. The gravitational force between objects becomes less, but the dark energy force that's causing expansion does not seem to depend on density and it seems to stay constant which means it overpowers gravity and the universe begins to accelerate.
0: Oh wow, so it's not as if that was never going to happen, the collapse of the universe. If I'm understanding you correctly, it's that it could have happened but for dark energy.
1: It might have, yes. And so the universe will expand if this dark energy keeps doing what it's doing. The universe will expand to an unimaginably low density. It will be so low density that in the distant future, intelligent creatures studying the universe in our Milky Way will not be able to see any other galaxies. We will be the only island universe that they will be able to study. Imagine astronomers in that time period trying to understand cosmology, where they have no external universe to see at all. In a longer period of time, our own Milky Way will be torn apart by dark energy, and Our sun will be long gone by then. The Earth will be long gone by then. We're talking unimaginably far distances in the future. But in that very, very far distant future, the universe will have expanded so far that even atoms will be separated by larger than the size of the visible universe today. It's an unimaginable concept for human brains. We can't wrap our minds around that, really. But it's what we observe will happen.
0: Astronomer Katie Pilachowski. Katie Pilachowski holds the Kirkwood Chair in Astronomy at Indiana University Bloomington. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Going back again to where we come from in terms of the universe, Is it true that we can still learn about the Big Bang through microwaves zooming around, that we can still detect?
1: Yes, and this is a wonderful story. So back in the 50s, people were experimenting at really the early time of radio astronomy. And two scientists at Bell Labs produced a microwave telescope that they were using to study what they could see. And they had some background noise, so they were trying to measure... Objects in the universe, the galactic center, the sun, various things that they could pick up as they moved overhead. But always, they had this background noise in the telescope. They couldn't figure out what it was.
0: Were they annoyed by it? They think it was static?
1: It seemed like some kind of static. They could not trace its origin. They thought for a while it might be bird poop on their radio dish. (laughs) There were all kinds of explanations that they came up with. And finally, they realized that it was just a pervasive radiation from space and it was named the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. Catchy. It had actually been predicted earlier as a remnant radiation from the Big Bang. So this is another of those complicated stories. But as the universe expanded, it was originally all of this crazy stuff that I mentioned earlier. It was still really hot, and it formed into protons and electrons and some neutrons, but no atoms. It was too hot for the electrons and the neutrons and protons, to form into hydrogen and helium atoms. But once it expanded enough to cool off, atoms formed. And at that point, the universe changed its state in a way that this radiation that was pervading the universe before the formation of atoms could now stream out into space. And this cosmic microwave background radiation that we see comes from this time when the universe cooled below a temperature of about 3,000 or 4,000 degrees as it was expanding. So this radiation is really a picture of the universe when it was very young and expanding, just at the point when atoms were beginning to form in the universe. So it gives us a real picture of what did the universe look like at that time.
0: So, in effect, we really can look back to the Big Bang.
1: We can. Well, not exactly as far as the Big Bang. And not exactly look, either. uh, Not with our eyes. So when this radiation first formed, As the universe was cooling, the atoms were forming, it became transparent, this radiation could flow. At that point, the universe had a temperature of about three or 4,000 degrees. If we could have been present at that time, the sky would have looked basically orangish or reddish. Everywhere we would look, we would see this radiation. That would be radiation we could see with our eyes and a reddish kind of color. As the universe expanded, the wavelength of this radiation also expanded. The space basically expanded, and the radiation went with the space. So it expanded to a microwave wavelength, which is where we detect it now.
0: And as I understand it, these microwaves are right now about 2.5 degrees above absolute zero. You're not going to cook a burrito with these microwaves. Not at all.
1: (laughs) No. And that is the coldest temperature we can find in nature. Nothing can be colder than that because it's surrounded by a radiation bath that keeps it at that temperature of 2.3 degrees above absolute zero.
0: A moment ago, we were talking about dark matter and dark energy and how difficult it is for us to know exactly what those things are, even though we know they're out there and we know that they're big players on the cosmic field. You gave an interview some years back in which you said there were a number of experiments being designed to tackle this mystery of dark matter and dark energy. You said that in about 10 years, we should have a few more answers. And that interview wasn't just some time ago. It was about exactly 11 years ago. So uh, so where are we? Where are we? What do we know now about dark energy and dark matter? And how do we know it?
1: So we've come a long way in 10 years. There have been a number of experiments in physics to try to detect dark matter and a lot of really creative experiments. For example, we have X-ray and gamma-ray telescopes in orbit. And the physicists hypothesized that there could be dark matter particles and anti-dark matter particles. And if they happened to meet, they would annihilate and produce radiation that we should be able to detect. So far, not so much luck. There are underground mine experiments to try to detect dark matter particles. So far, no luck.
0: Wait a minute. Underground mine experiments? <laughs> well,
1: you, ha- you have to remove all other sources of radiation in order to reduce the noise that you get from all the other kinds of radiation. So deep underground, we're protected from all of the radiation that's produced by, say, cosmic rays or all of the things that come from space. And we can get a very, very, uh, nuclear physics kind of quiet environment and no luck so it's been really frustrating we still don't know what dark matter is but we have a lot more information about how it's distributed in space how much of it there is much more precisely than we did back then we have developed many many new ways of detecting it and measuring its quantity we understand now its role in the formation of galaxies and the evolution of structure in the universe far better than we did then, but we still don't know what it is. (laughs) It's very frustrating.
0: So underground caverns and other means of studying aside, maybe we should go a little bit more old school and talk about the telescope because one of your areas of expertise is large telescope design and construction. So is it true that you never forget the first large telescope you build? You never forget your first.
1: You never forget any telescope.
0: (laughs) Well, what's that been like to design and build them? What was your first telescope like?
1: So I had the distinct honor and pleasure of serving as project scientist for the construction of IU's own telescope. This is the Wynn Telescope. It was built by a consortium of universities and the National Observatory, University of Wisconsin- Indiana University, Yale University, and the National Observatory in Tucson. And this telescope came about because of the experimental mirror program at the University of Arizona. Astronomers recognized that we needed bigger telescopes to tackle questions like dark energy and to study the very distant universe to figure out how fast is the universe expanding all of those big questions. And yet we knew we couldn't build really, really large mirrors. There were two technologies that were developed to construct really large mirrors. One of them is called the segmented mirror design, where astronomers build a whole bunch of smaller hexagonal mirrors that are a little bit curved, put them together to make a giant mirror, or to build a new lightweight sort of monolithic mirror but with hollow cavities and um, sort of molded in a new and innovative way. So as part of that second technology, the University of Arizona designed and built three 3.5 meter mirrors. And one of them went, well, they went to a variety of different places, but one of them was awarded to the National Observatory. And I was part of an effort to capture that mirror for the wind consortium so that we could build our telescope on Kitt Peak, and had just an amazing time designing and building that telescope. It incorporated a whole bunch of innovative new technologies, including a dome, mirror cooling. Mirrors have to be kept at the ambient nighttime temperature, otherwise they create air currents that damage the ability to see faint objects, affects the image quality of the telescope. They have to be able to move fast. We want to keep them as low cost as possible, so we make the mirrors much more bowl-shaped, much more curved than traditional older mirrors. Lots of new technology went into this telescope. And that technology was being developed in the 80s and 90s in search of ways to build 8 and 10 meter telescopes. So Wynn was part of this new technology development for the 8 and 10 meter telescopes we have today. And we're now moving into even larger telescopes, Telescopes of apertures of 20 or 30 or even 40 meters in diameter. Absolutely huge telescopes. These will give us the ability to see even more distant galaxies, seeing the first stars formed in the universe, being able to look at just unimaginable distances to understand how galaxies first formed. These giant new telescopes are amazing. Another question you asked me at the beginning of the hour what questions people often ask. And one of those other questions is, well, why do you need telescopes on the ground when you can just build a space telescope? And the answer is that while space is great, it's really expensive, and it's really hard to build giant facilities in space. The Hubble Space Telescope that's done amazing work is only about two and a half meters in diameter. The mirror isn't very big. The James Webb Telescope that will be launched, we hope, in 2021, it keeps slipping, has a diameter of about six meters. It will see amazing things that Hubble can't do, but they're still not very big. And the cost of those telescopes run to billions of dollars, many billions of dollars. On the ground, we can build telescopes of 20 or 30 meters in diameter, much, much bigger than Hubble or James Webb Space Telescope. For or $2 billion, much cheaper, and with those much larger diameters, they can do and see things that Hubble and James Webb could never do. So astronomy benefits from both space and ground facilities and allows us to ask and answer questions that we cannot do with just space or just ground.
0: Another thing that marks the difference between a terrestrial telescope and one that's in orbit, I imagine, would be dealing with light pollution, which I know is another one of your areas of expertise. Is finding a way to escape or see past the ambient light of the earth getting more difficult?
1: Every year, yes. Yes. People, population grows, cities grow, we get more innovative lighting. Protecting observatory sites from light pollution is It's been going on for nearly 50 years. And in many locations, it's been very successful. But I think the more serious question for humankind is not astronomy's problem with light pollution, although we care a lot about dark skies. But let me talk about the environmental cost of light pollution. Light pollution affects the natural world in many more ways than it does the human world. It affects migratory patterns of birds. It affects migratory patterns of fish and reptiles. It affects the way in which our natural world functions. And it's very destructive to have a bright night sky. And so people should be concerned about light pollution, not just for astronomy, but because of its effect on the natural world. It also has an effect on human beings. I teach large classes of students here at IU, and I find it tragic how few of my students have ever seen the Milky Way. It just cannot be seen from the urban environments in which most people live. We can see the planets and we can see the moon, we can see a few stars, but we can't see the Milky Way unless we get way outside of a city. And so most people seem to have never even seen the Milky Way. And I think that's a terrible tragedy. The Milky Way is a World Heritage Site, in fact. It's one of those things that I wish everyone could see. Light pollution is causing, I think, great harm to us as a culture, to all cultures around the world. I think that's a tragedy.
0: You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest today is astronomer Katie Pilachowski. In addition to her research and her teaching at IU Bloomington, Katie Pilachowski has served as chair of the Department of Astronomy, Interim Dean of Women's Affairs, and Associate Dean of the IU College of Arts and Sciences. A graduate seminar that you held several years ago here at IU was about astronomical citizenship. And I confess, at first I thought that citizenship was a poetic term for the celestial bodies that inhabit our solar system or the galaxies. But in fact, it refers to the culture and the activities of professional astronomers that extend beyond their research. So what have you learned about astronomical citizenship?
1: The most important thing is teamwork and a sense of responsibility. That our field is so complex. I think that's true of many fields of science. But in astronomy, We can't do anything without a whole university of people skills. We need engineers, all kinds of engineers. We need electronics engineers, mechanical engineers, structural engineers. We need computer programmers. We need business people. We need political assistants. We need writers. We need everything in order to really be successful as astronomers. And in order to build that support, in order to build the telescopes that we need to do our research. We need to engage so widely in the world. The citizenship question for me means understanding our responsibilities as scientists to participate not just in the research of the field, but in understanding how the field works and to contribute to making it work well. That means serving on advisory committees. It means refereeing papers for publication in journals. It means helping and mentoring younger astronomers to develop into the best professionals they can be. It means understanding the history of our field that really shapes how we do things today in ways that I think most young astronomers don't understand. We make choices about publication, about telescopes, about sites, about how we interact as individuals, how we share data, all of those things that are really shaped by the history of our field. And I think it's a good thing when people can understand what makes them work the way they do now. So citizenship for me within the field of astronomy is all of those responsibilities together. And I think it's part of our mission as educators to train our students not just in the basics of astronomy, but also in understanding how to make the best contributions to the field in so many different ways.
0: In the time since you had this seminar a few years back, are there any examples of this diverse and thorough engagement and awareness of the history of the field? Are there examples of that working particularly well?
1: One of the ways in which astronomy differs from many other sciences is that we have, in the U.S. in particular, we have a very robust tradition of private support in the construction of telescopes. So for example, the Lick Observatory in California, the Palomar Observatory, the McDonald Observatory in Texas, even the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory in Chile, which is owned and operated by the U.S. government, all of those were produced with major contributions from donors who felt that astronomy is and was important to make investments. The Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea in Hawaii were built with funding from the Keck Foundation, for which astronomers are immensely grateful. And this private tradition of funding in astronomy dates back to uh, George Ellery Hale, an astronomer in the early part of the 20th century in Los Angeles who really went out and hobnobbed with the rich folks in order to persuade them to begin to make Contributions to build the Mount Wilson Observatory in the San Gabriel Mountains. This tradition is an important part of our field, and it can be dated back to this one individual who felt it was so important that he was able to make it happen. A tradition that continues today with funding of all of the larger telescopes that we're building in this country now. I need also to give credit to the National Science Foundation, which has built most of the radio observatories and made great contributions to public facilities in astronomy, in particular the National Observatory facilities and telescopes down in Chile, they paid for half of the Cerro Tololo Observatory, and private donations paid for the other half. In construction now in Chile is the telescope that I mentioned before, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which was begun with contributions from private donors, and then developed and is being built with federal funds from the National Science Foundation, and from the Department of Energy. So we've moved from private funding of telescopes to a shared responsibility, a public and private, with federal funds and private funds working together. This is very special to astronomy and is an important part of our history.
0: I'm wondering if there's just something about astronomy. All of the sciences if you look at them close enough, are teaching us about a lot of things besides the thing that they are. And astronomy certainly seems to be well-established in that tradition. We have looked up at the night sky with awe and wonder for as long as there have been people. And yet we're learning a lot more than just the small bits of amazing progress we can make in studying the cosmos from our earthbound perspective. What do you think we can learn from the study of the universe, our solar system, our sun, the galaxy, and everything beyond? What can we learn from the study of the universe that can help us better understand life on Earth?
1: We learn who we are. We learn what our connection is to the universe, how the sun came to be, how the planets were formed, the very elements that we are, are tied to the stars. The evolution of stars, that's where the elements are made. Our connection to the universe is very deep. We are not here without that whole history of the universe preceding us. Our story is part of that larger story. The question that we started with, the existence of life elsewhere than Earth, is a part of that story. And it's a piece that we're just beginning to understand in a deep way. We know about exoplanets. We know about how many there are. We know that there are many different types of planets that we never imagined before. Different kinds of planets than we have in our solar system. We know the universe is incredibly diverse in its ability to produce planets. We're just beginning to understand the bigger picture about the evolution of planets themselves. We know a lot about the history of the Earth. Over the last few decades, we've begun to understand about the history of Venus, about the history of Mars, about how planets evolve and change over billions of years. And we're now beginning to be able to apply that understanding to exoplanets, planets around other stars, understand about the evolution of climate. We look at Venus and we understand begin to understand the history of that planet. When the sun was cooler, Venus probably was a lot like Earth. might have been water covered, it might have had an atmosphere more like ours, probably like our primitive atmosphere of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrogen. But as the sun brightened, as that planet evolved, its atmosphere changed. It lost its water. It became intensely hot because of just an incredible greenhouse effect. Venus is the hottest planet in the solar system. It's not the one closest to the sun, but it's much hotter than Mercury, and all because of its greenhouse effect. We can look at Mars and see evidence of flowing water on the surface of Mars. There's not enough water on Mars now to cause that, and Mars is too cold. But in the past, Mars probably had a thicker atmosphere, probably had a lot more water. For various reasons it's lost its water. We've begun to understand the processes in the interiors of these planets in Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars that shape their surfaces and why they differ. Why the Earth has plate tectonics. Why our continents float on the deeper layers of the mantle. Why they move around. Venus on the other hand is more volcanic. It doesn't have plate tectonics. Mars Apparently early on might have had plate tectonics, might have had continents, but it died. The planet itself basically froze out. We begin to understand these worlds, and we can apply this to our understanding of planets around other stars as we learn more about them. And that tells us about our own world, about its own history, its own future, how our own Earth will evolve. All of these things really tie us very closely to the universe.
0: You hold the chair in astronomy at Indiana University of Bloomington. You conduct a lot of research. You also teach. Every teacher should feel, I suppose, that it's their happy task to be purveyors of awe and wonder, and it seems like your field, the star field, sorry, I couldn't resist that one, succeeds more at that than most. What's it like to teach astronomy to crop after crop of university students? What do they have a hard time grasping? How do they surprise you? What do you learn from them?
1: I love the questions they ask. The concepts that we talk about in astronomy are so beyond human experience. The size, the scale, the distance, the time, all of those things are way beyond what we deal with in everyday life. The thing about astronomy that amazes me the most is that we are... These puny little people on a planet out in the middle of nowhere who can comprehend and understand the origin of the universe, the time and space of the universe that we live in. It's just amazing. And you're right that astronomy has it easy compared to most other disciplines. It's easy to shock and awe the students. Just a little astronomy, whatever little bit, is amazing and mind blowing. Most of the students we teach are in our introductory classes for non-science majors. And they come to astronomy because they think it might be the most interesting of the sciences that they could take. They have have to take some science. And astronomy just seems appealing. And so we do our best to help them leave our classrooms with a lifelong appreciation of astronomy, with the ability to listen to an interview on the radio or read an article online that they can put a context around, they can understand more deeply because they've taken astronomy from us to really provide the larger landscape that lets them enjoy all of the discoveries that will be made in astronomy in their lifetimes.
0: Katie Pilachowski, thank you very much for gently and politely blowing my mind. It's been great having you on Profiles. Thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me as well.
0: Katie Pilachowski, astronomer, professor, and occupier of the Kirkwood Chair in Astronomy at Indiana University, Bloomington. Katie Pilachowski has also served as Interim Dean of Women's Affairs and Associate Dean of the IU College of Arts and Sciences. You've been listening to Profiles. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles.